Welcome to Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. A look at the changing risk and resilience landscape with insights on the challenges facing businesses today and tomorrow. Hello, my name is David Hilgen. And today we're going to talk about directors and officers liability insurance, commonly referred to as D&O. Our guest today on this Future of Risk podcast recently gave a presentation at RIMS Live 2021, the topic, how to attack the top drivers of D&O rates. Brian Zink is a senior vice president and head of management liability at Zurich North America. Brian joined Zurich in 2010. He previously worked for Beasley and for the Hartford Financial Products. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the podcast. David, thanks for having me. Really appreciate this opportunity. Brian, let me uh, start off with a basic question. What is directors and officers insurance? Who needs it and what does it help protect? David, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, plain and simple, directors and officers liability insurance protects the personal assets of the corporate directors and officers. So the directors meaning like the board of directors of the company uh, also protects their spouses in the event that they are personally sued by employees, vendors, competitors, investors, customers, or other parties for actual or alleged wrongful acts in their role in managing the companies. I manage the publicly traded and the privately held. So, you know, the triggers for both those policies are different in a sense for a public company. It needs to be a securities claim or a derivative in fashion where the private form is a, a much broader access point for, you know, a company to trigger the insurance there. But the general principle is uh, to protect the board of directors and the C-suite of the actual company itself in their role in managing the company. Sets the stage. Liability insurance is a relatively small part of any company's portfolio, but it appears to have been a thorn in the side of corporations and their insurance providers for years. Why is that? So if you really go back like in the last 20 years, you know, if you go back to like 2003 was really the last hard market in our space, but it's really a critical time in history. That was really the beginning of like, you know, corporate governance as we see it today. You know, you've probably heard a term like Sarbanes-Oxley. That really came from large frauds that were uncovered at a lot of publicly traded companies. You remember like the, the collapse of Enron, WorldCom and things like that. So, you know, that basically drove the rates up dramatically during that period. DNO insurance is kind of forefront there because it's really defending all of the white hats and the black hats from a defense standpoint when there was an issue at, you know, one of these companies where either they missed earnings or, you know, back then you're talking about pretty large corporate fraud. So today, like if you want a person to sit on your board, they will not sit on the board of a public or privately held company, typically if there is no DNO policy. DNO insurance basically because things are decided at the board level typically will you know sit excess of every other type of insurance out there just because the decisions are really made at the board level in the executive C-suite there so there's that exposure there for them managing <clears throat> the company well it sounds like a very critical coverage I know before I joined my local tennis 
club board that I wanted to see their insurance policy <laughs> before someone gets injured at the court and I'm subject to a, a lawsuit myself. How does the number of publicly traded companies impact DNO pricing? David, that's a good question. So, you know, it, it comes down to basic math for the marketplace. So if you think about, you know, the number of publicly traded companies today versus 1999 is down roughly a third. 1999, the reason I brought that up, that was the, the peak. So what that means for the Dino insurance companies is, you know, the number of companies, you know, multiplied by the actual premium, that's basically the money collected by the industry. So less companies, less premium in total, because it's, you know, there's a pooled risk for the, the insurance industry. If you look at the, the historic largest market out there, AIG typically deployed a cash flow underwriting strategy where they would write pretty much every account out there. They basically participated in 90 plus percent of the marketplace. And that math stopped really working in 2014 because there were fewer and fewer companies and the rates were going down and down. You know, we had a 16 year softening cycle. So what basically has happened from 2018 forward is AIG and the others have recognized that the pricing in the market doesn't make sense because we're actually collecting less premium than we're paying out as an industry. That was the need one to collect more on average per account, but obviously there's risk differentiation out in the market. AIG has exited parts of the market, so they're no longer deploy that strategy, which has created a more efficient marketplace. What that means is there's differentiation based on, you know, sector by sector now, and the more problematic or tougher to place accounts, they're priced appropriately now today. And that's basically just a function of how many companies were out there. And then obviously the, the doubling of securities class actions from 2016 forward. Interesting. Uh, talk, talk to me about the rise in federal claims and derivative actions. If I'm serving as a director on a corporate board, why does this concern me? Great question. So if you look at the last 20 years, Stanford Securities Clearinghouse tracks the federal suits year by year from 1996 forward. So basically, if you look at the chart from 2015 forward, you saw a pivot in 2015 mid-year and basically the catapult from 15 to 16 where we went from roughly 200 total claims in, in the industry to 400 was the m a objection suits just shifted from state court to federal court so that basically brought our number to 400. the good thing was those were high dismissal rates today the m a suit has a dismissal rate near 90 percent. i think it's 89 percent per the last stanford report we had 200 M&A suits and 200 traditional 10B5 claims that came in. What's happened though from 2016 forward is that mix is no longer 50-50. It's more like 60-40. And in 2020, it actually was even greater. What that signals for us is the accounts, the, the traditional claims that came through, there's more of them now than there were in 2016. And those come at a, a lower dismissal rate than the M&A suits. Then, Add in what you touched on is the derivatives. Companies historically, <clears throat> 20 years ago, would get a derivative typically as a tag loan to a federal securities class action. Today, that's not the case. Today, you can actually see derivatives without class actions. And we see that the event driven cases. If you think about things like hashtag me too, those hit DNO contracts, you look at, you know, a plane crash, 
a dam collapse, a cyber breach. More recently, we saw the uh, Colonial Pipeline. Those are things that bring the DNO contracts front and center. And then really look at the pandemic. So, you know, we had a lot of uh, social justice claims, board diversity claims. Those are really newer claims that really just didn't exist in uh, 2019. So we're not only getting uh, more claims in federal court, but we're also getting newer perils, unfortunately. Well, you mentioned Me Too, which brings up the question of event-driven litigation. It seems to be a big driver of DNO claims. It seems almost that whenever an event that leads to a lawsuit, the directors and officers are in the crosshairs. Me Too movement, you mentioned plane crashes, oil spills, wildfires, cyber breaches. How is event-driven litigation affecting the DNO market? It's been problematic in some of those cases because it's from a success standpoint, you know, outside of a couple cases, the, the cyber breach has not really been an impact to the DNO contract. But unfortunately, you know, the plane crash, the dam collapse, the wildfires, those were all very, very big claims. And, you know, some of them are still in, in the queue. Take the California wildfire example that actually took that company into bankruptcy. And, you know, you're talking about a, a tower loss there of a couple hundred million. So it's, it's a pretty meaningful newer peril on how it's being brought. Yeah, the DNO headwinds keep getting stronger, don't they? Let's talk a little bit about what I call the alphabet soup. I want to ask you about SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies and IPOs, initial public offerings, and how they have impacted DNO claims. Yeah, so great question. We can touch on IPOs first. So IPOs, there's positive results with regard to like Cyan and, you know, Federal Forum where, you know, Cyan decision originally said, you know, basically you could see a IPO claim in federal and in state court. There's been some positive litigation after basically stating that, you know, it really would be coming in the, the federal forum, which, which is a positive. So you're not defending the actual claim on multiple fronts versus today where, you know, that just think about the cost of having to defend something in, in multiple jurisdictions. So that's a positive from that aspect. IPO claims are strict liability in the sense that Section 11 exposure, you know, is really a three-year window. And typically, if a company missed earnings, there'd be a claim that came in with regard to misrepresentation in that prospectus exposure. And, you know, typically that hasn't been a very high success from a motion to dismiss on behalf of the company. So that alone caused such a dramatic shift in how the marketplace priced it. If you go back to 2018, an IPO primary in the first part of the year might have been 10,000 per million. By the end of 2019, that same 10,000 per million was being priced at 350,000 per million. So dramatic increase. Retentions went from a million to anywhere from 10 to 25 million. Really, that was the retention in prices. There was a correlation just on like the market cap size of how big that company planned to be, like whether it was going to be a unicorn, which is a massive company, or a uh, small cap company, which might have like a billion dollar offering. The second question you touched on was SPACs. So a SPAC IPO would actually be handled in our, our financial institution group. But basically what happens is it's a different way for a company to go public in the sense that they have these special purpose acquisition companies that are created, they go public. And when they go public in their prospectus, they say, hey, we're, 
we're going to look to acquire a private company over the next two years. And if they did not successfully purchase a private company, then basically they would dissolve this back and give the money back. But the goal is to find somebody they would typically say these are the sectors of interest and basically that avenue you know it's still going through the courts on exposure you know is, is it an ipo is it not an ipo you know you're seeing articles from a, a daily perspective just on that and typically the difference in companies is very different from an underwriting perspective you know i would say the quality of risk of an IPO is typically much greater than that of a SPAC that is purchasing a private company. So we see a lot of like electric vehicle, like companies that don't have revenues there. They have an idea, they have potential future revenue. So I would say it's more the like bottom quartile of DNO risks that go through the, the SPAC purchasing a private company, which is called a DSPAC transaction. So the DSPAC transaction would be handled in the management liability group book, but the SPAC would be handled in the FI group. Just to give you perspective on the last two years, we saw 250 SPAC IPOs in 2020. In 2021, there's already been 313. Wow. And it really slowed, you know, by April. And the reason it slowed is because there's so much scrutiny right now with the SEC just on those types of transactions. The other piece is insurance companies have also kind of pumped the brakes as well. You know, the, the two biggest writers out there were really like Sampo and Excel. Zurich had some exposure in 2020. We decided to pump the brakes going into the end of the year. Not saying that we won't look at them, but we, we definitely have a uh, conservative view and appetite uh, with regard to them. Wow, you, you do a good job of setting the stage and explaining the challenges to both corporations and their insurers, but what has been the response from businesses and their insurance providers to these challenges? So it's a good question. And, you know, typically when we meet with a publicly traded company, we will meet typically with somebody from the finance group, whether it's either the treasurer, the CFO, the general counsel. And typically if you can explain the market, you know, some of the questions that you've asked to them, they can get it. Their struggle is budgeting and forecasting. You know, we typically forecast a year, probably six months before the year starts. They're not too different from that perspective. So it's really managing the cost. You know, they understand why the prices need to go up. They want to understand why they're being differentiated or how they're being differentiated. Zurich will not go out and say, hey, we need 30 points on every single risk. We differentiate risk. So somebody might get 10% up and somebody might get 200% up. And that really depends on their risk profile claim history and the variables of that account and what sector they in and probability of claim and things like that. I think it's a, a mixed bag, right? The broker has a job. They're typically selling, you know, oftentimes on price, which is problematic at times in a changing market, but coverage as well is paramount. You get to the actual customer and you can sit down and, you know, break bread and, you know, explain this. It, it's easier, obviously with the pandemic that's gotten harder and those meetings, which typically were done in person are now done over a uh, Zoom or a Teams meeting. Well, there's a lot going on with DNO, which explains why I keep reading about it so much. Brian, I want to thank you for joining us on this Future Risk podcast. But before I let you go, I want to end with what we call a lightning round of questions. The emphasis on light. These are meant to be lighthearted. So, Brian, 
if you're ready, the New Jersey version of the lightning round. Brian, I know you're a New Jersey native. I also live here in the Garden State, but I'm a transplant from across the Delaware River. What's the best part about living in New Jersey? For me, it's the outdoors. I live near the beach, so I grew up in Monmouth County, so I'm only a couple miles from the ocean. I'm less than a mile from the bay, so you know, really what it has to offer. You know, winter, you can go skiing up in the north, very close proximity to the city, and just being outside and near the Jersey Shore. Okay. Well, what's the worst part? Uh, the worst part, I would say, would be cost of living. You know, <laughs> New Jersey uh, is is always up there with most of the tri-state high cost of living, you know, anywhere from like insurance, taxes, or real estate valuation. So that's the uh, the struggle of being up in the north. It's certainly hard to uh, retire in New Jersey, or to, there are better options anyhow. New Jersey's often uh, the butt of jokes. What's the biggest misperception about New Jersey that you'd like to clear up? <laughs> so I would say, being that we obviously are all over the country, I would say probably, you know, when people think of New Jersey, they think of the Jersey Shore MTV show or the Sopranos. I guess the irony is like most of the people on the Jersey Shore are actually not from New Jersey. May or may not have heard of the, the term Benny, but that's uh, people who visit the shore that aren't from the shore. The other misrepresentation is people who drive through New Jersey, they're on the Jersey Turnpike and that's their view of New Jersey with power plants and refineries. And, you know, obviously if you move off that road towards the ocean or up north, it's uh, a dramatically different view. So I would say that those are the two main misconceptions of uh, New Jersey. I'd have to agree with that. Before the pandemic, you were commuting to Zurich's downtown New York office. How have you adjusted to working from home? So it has been an adjustment. I would say typically the commute was the excuse to end the day. And now that we are remote working on multiple time zones, I, I would say that's been a challenge. But uh, being home and closer to the family is definitely the benefit. Okay, finally, one non-New Jersey related uh, question. Your last name is Zink. Were you always the last person in line at school? Great question. In, in high school, it's funny, my daughter actually had my yearbook out the other day. In high school, there was actually six people behind me in homeroom. Really? Yeah. I, I can't even guess, uh, Zink, uh, Zimmergy. Someone named Zimmergy was behind you, I suppose. Wow, that's big high school. Hey, yeah, um, actually, yeah. Not, not too big. So it was like an all-boys school, uh, Christian Brothers Academy. So only about 200 boys. So wow. just uh, random luck to have that many Zs behind me. Interesting. Brian, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. And thanks for our listeners for tuning in to this Future of Risk podcast. I'm David Hilgen. Thanks, David. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at ZurichNA.com and join us next week. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee 
guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.